Turn with me now, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, verse 27. That's the beginning of our text this evening, this morning. <laughs> oh, that's the beginning of our text this morning. Who knows? It could be this evening by the time we finish. Yeah, but, uh, page 941 in your pew Bible, if you're using that. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look into this. If you were here last Sunday, we had a, a, a bit of a different morning, focusing in on what I believe is the primary gospel passage that appears in Scripture. Just a brief six-verse description from the Apostle Paul that is absolutely captivating and impossible to capture in all of its depth in a brief sermon. So we approached that a bit differently last Sunday to let that passage shine. It's amazing to think that that text, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is probably the clearest statement from God to humanity with regard to his gospel and how it works. And this Sunday's passage follows up on that to explain how it is, to keep talking about how it is that it comes to us and how we receive it. Is there any action on our own part in the receiving of this gift? We've heard it in song this morning. We've heard it in the description of the, the uh, anointing of David that all of these things are of the Lord. And Paul is unpacking that now in the wake of that gospel statement. How is it that we access this? Is there any part that we play in it? But wow, there are other things that are learned from this text as well beyond just uh, how we access our salvation and beginning to understand that. There's also a weaving together of old and new covenant, of an understanding of the old and new covenant people of God that's added to even further in this text. So a rich theological text. And I'll just tell you the bottom line even before we get started. In all things... In all things that pertain to our relationship with God, we have one job to do, and that is just to look to Jesus in faith. That is the bottom line. We'll get there again this morning as we walk through this passage. But our only hope in life and death is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we look to him with regard to all things that pertain to our relationship with God. Let's pray, let's read this text, and then let's walk through it a bit together. Heavenly Father, we entrust ourselves to you now, asking that you would glorify yourself through the ministry of your word among us, that you would deepen our understanding of what you have done for us in Christ through this text that you would help us to understand what our role is in the receiving of it, and that you would help us to see that it has always been so. From old covenant to new covenant, salvation is by God's grace through faith. First in the promise of a coming Messiah, and then in him personally once he arrived and accomplished the work of saving grace. Help us to see that, Lord God, such that we ourselves are strengthened and stabilized in our faith and so that we are prepared to hear and respond to the primary charge you've given to the church in every generation. 
which is to take this message to the nations. May we be equipped for our central calling as believers in Christ through what we read and study in this text today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen now to the Word of God. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God a God of the Jews only? Is He not also? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted to him as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Quote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. End quote. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So reads the Word of God. Over the years, I have talked with non-religious people about the gospel. One of the biggest stumbling blocks has not been the existence of God or the deity of Christ or, or even the exclusivity of Christianity saying that Jesus alone can reconcile us to God. Bigger than any of these, more frequently cited in my personal experience, has been the fact that it's just not fair for one person to receive the penalty for the sins of another. 
That's the objection I hear most often. It's just not fair for one person to receive the penalty for the sins of another. In other words, for Jesus to pay for my sins. That's, that's not fair. I don't like that system. And that's the objection that most often needs to be overcome. By nature, I would say by fallen nature, we don't like to receive charity. We don't like to receive anything that even smacks of charity. We just don't like to appear needy. As we used to say down south where I grew up, we don't want to be beholden to nobody. If you need a translation, I can offer subtitles. <laughs> I've actually had people get indignant, indignant with me at the mere suggestion that they need a substitute sin bearer. But make no mistake, as we saw in Paul's summary of the gospel last Sunday in Romans 3, 21 to 26, if there's no one to absorb the just wrath of God against our sins and remove them from us as far as the east is from the west, to use the language of the text, if we have no propitiation with God, we will receive His wrath ourselves and still not be free of our sins as a result. The reason is because we cannot pay the full depth of our sin. It cannot be paid in us. Our offense against God is infinite and we have finite resources. So we could suffer for eternity. There is the doctrine. There is the, the understanding, the redemptive logic behind the eternality of hell. And why it will be forever. Because there's no way for a human being to pay the debt of their own sin. It's an eternal and infinite debt. It's infinite because it's not measured by the finite flaws in our own intentions. It's measured by the limitless perfection of the nature of God. So our sin against God is infinite. And it requires, therefore, a payment that we give. Bottom line, deep down... With regard to our quarrel with the gospel, we really want to believe that somehow, somehow our salvation, our reconciliation to God is deserved on some level. On some level, it's reward. On some level, it's affirmation. Even if only in a small degree, we want to hold on to that. We had a choice in bringing it about. My friends, you have to deny the clear teaching of Scripture to make that statement. Deep down, we really want to believe that somehow our salvation is deserved, that He chose us, He wants us on His team. Or we're just a, a bit less odious to Him than others are. Or maybe we're a bit more insightful or... Or a bit more humble. Or even just a bit more lucky than others. 
But for whatever reason, we've embraced the gospel and they haven't. And that sets us just a little bit above them. Because of that, we have in our understanding. Here in DuPage County, we'd never do that boasting out loud. That would be impolite. But we know it in the depths of our heart, and we're pretty sure you can see it in us as well. That's sort of the way we treat it. And all of a sudden, the righteousness that we receive in Christ is shrouded behind a thick veil of self-righteousness that just acts as though somehow God, God's glory is magnified, even an infinitesimal amount, by the fact that we have savingly believed. Paul's response, there is no basis for that. That's his response, and he explains himself. So let's look at the passage this morning. Romans 3, 27 through 4, 12 in three parts, and you can see those three parts listed in your bulletin. First, the exclusion of boasting, 327 to 31. Then the examples of faith, Abraham and David, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4. And then a little study, a, the explanation of circumcision in verses 9 through 12. Let's walk through this text together. As Paul was opening his rich statement on the gospel back in 321 to 26, he spoke of the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law, verse 21. And he went on to explain that we're justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 24. So the natural follow-up question that opens our passage today, not just revisiting and rehearsing all that was taught there, the natural follow-up question in verse 27 is, then what becomes of our boasting? We return to addressing the Jews here because of their tendency to boast about their heritage, about their belief that faith and obedience work together to set them right with God and that they were proud of their place. So maybe he's just talking to the Jews again, but I actually believe there is a broader picture in mind, and many who study the book of Romans do, one which spotlights the boastful, prideful tendency we all feel. What I was just describing a moment ago about believing that somehow we are deserving of our salvation. I think this spotlights the pride that we all feel that recoils from anything that reeks of charity. I think that's what's being described here. So what becomes of our boasting? Paul says right here in verse 27, it is excluded. Then he poses a follow-up question. By what kind of law is it excluded? That's not immediately an evident question. Let's walk through it to see what he actually means by that. He's asking what kind of a law, and he uses that word namas, that, that word that usually refers to the Mosaic law. By what kind of law is boasting excluded? But I think what he means is by what kind of principle or what kind of rule, although I do think he chose that word so that we would hear the echo of the Mosaic law behind what he's saying, but he's not just asking here about two different interpretations of the law. 
that are competing with one another to find out how boasting is excluded, he's actually talking about something other than the law. He's talking about something different than the law. He just wants the law in, our back, in the background of our minds. So by what kind of namas, by what kind of principle or rule is boasting excluded? What kind of principle excludes human boasting in their justification before God? The principle of works, the namas of works, that's his first question. Is that the thing that eliminates boasting? It's like, well, we would immediately pick up on that question. No, the, the law of works, it, our works put a spotlight on us. So that's not what's going to eliminate boasting. That's what's going to generate boasting. If we think we have some work, some involvement in this salvation that is ours, this is the principle Paul is actually using. He says, no, not uh, the principle of works, no, but by the principle of faith. By the principle of faith. That's what eliminates boasting. If our salvation is by faith, then we don't do anything to earn it, and so therefore there's nothing to boast. So that's kind of the question that he's asking. On what grounds do we come to the conclusion that boasting is excluded? So this principle of faith that he's talking about, this is the principle Paul is using, this is the language that he's using to set up a contrast with their perception of their understanding of the law, that if you do these works, you will be justified. Because if you do these works, you will be justified. Jesus did all the works of the law, and he needed no redemption. He needed no propitiation with God. His righteousness was established by the fact that he lived in perfect conformity to the law. But he's the only one. So he's the only one who has God's favor. He's the only one that enjoys God's approval. Because he's the only one that actually can live according to the principles of the law. This revelation of the righteousness of God. So this principle of faith that Paul introduces here is the one that he wants standing in contrast to an understanding of the law that was in the mind of the Jews and increasingly in the mind of the church through the Jewish testimony that somehow you could live according to the law and earn God's favor, earn your own justification, your own righteousness. He's doing this to distance his argument from the law without overthrowing the law. He wants to use it in the way that it was always intended to be used, the law, to point to the need for faith. That's what Paul wants to do. So this law of faith that eliminates boasting is the thing that he's setting up so that we can see that salvation comes from faith and the law was always pointing to that, always because as he said in verse 20, right before he gave his gospel passage, there is no way to be justified by the works of the law. Again here in verse 28, for we behold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works of the law can't justify. It's faith that justifies and it's, law, it's the law that points to faith. That is such an important phrase. That is our title for this morning. Apart from works of the law. If we were justified by works of the law, the clear insinuation would not only be that justification is not by faith, it's by works, 
but that God is the God of the Jews only. That's the meaning of that question that Paul asked. So is God the God of the Jews only? Why is he asking that question? He's asking it because he set up this law of faith and the law of faith insinuates to us that the salvation is broader than the Jews. How so? God is the God of the Jews, not, is God is not the God of the Jews only, but he's also the God of the whole world. And if, he had, if justification had been by works of the law, then God is the God of the Jews only because justification came through the law and the law was given to the Jews. That would be an insinuation of the fact that that was his sole focus, but it wasn't his sole focus. Even though the law came through the Jews, we read in verse 29, God is the God of the Gentiles also. Verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Uh, That's just emphasizing the full range of faith. There's not attempting to distinguish some way of accessing faith between Jews and Gentiles by faith and through faith. No difference intended there. We could take a long time with that, but let's just give that as the bottom line, all right? Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, justify the, the, the Jews by faith, and the Gentiles through faith, thus the law serves its purpose in what Paul is saying here, its purpose of revealing the righteous standard of God. Or we might say that better, it serves its purpose by revealing a clear knowledge of how we fail to meet God's righteous standard. When the law is spelled out, here's the argument of Galatians. Now you understand your sin. You know where your transgression happened. The law has been laid down there. Oh, I see where I was wrong. I was wrong all, all along. With the first sin, we were severed from our relationship with God. But when the law, the code of the law is put in front of our eyes, now we understand it. Oh, wow, that's God's standard? And then we do what all human beings do. The Jews did this. They work and tinker with the law in order to make it seem like it's able to be followed to the point of justification. Until Jesus comes along and in the Sermon on the Mount expands and explains the full intent of the law and you think, I can't meet that standard. I can keep from extramarital sex, but keeping lustful thoughts out of my mind? I can stop before I murder my brother, but just being frustrated and hateful toward him? I can't control that. There's the standard of the law. The law can't save us. It can't reconcile us to God, but it can sure show us where we fell short. Paul's making that argument here. And he's saying, that's not just for the Jews, that's for the Gentiles as well. Because if you could be saved by the mere revelation of the standard, and he's only giving it to one people, there's the ones he's going to save. But if he's giving it through those people for the nations, now he's the God of the God, God of the Gentiles as well. So the the law gives us a knowledge of sin. So by no means, then, does Paul overthrow the law by this principle of faith that he's introduced. And you see him making that point in verse 31. On the contrary, he upholds the law. And boasting is excluded. 
He's answered the question. Just as it always has been from the very beginning, there's never been a basis for boasting in our relationship with God. Moving on into chapter 4 then, justification has faith apart from works of the law. And we see that now here as chapter 4 opens in the examples of both Abraham and David in this first half of the chapter. By the way, Pastor Kip will be handling the second half of chapter 4 next Sunday, picking up on this argument, taking it on home, shall we say, before we turn another corner at the beginning of chapter 5 in verse 1 there. So we see here the examples of both Abraham and David proving the point that Paul has just made about our salvation. In verse 2 here we see, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Not before God, surely, because God would never have set up justification in such a way that any part of it would depend on human effort. That would be contrary to the purposes of God, not just beyond the ability of humanity. God would never have set up justification in such a way that it would depend in any way on human effort. For one, fallen human beings just wouldn't be capable of contributing whatever even small part the salvation transaction would require of them. So it would never be set up that way. If salvation were set up in a way that it depended on us to do anything, no one would be saved. That's what it means that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Secondly, though, setting up justification in this way would also compromise the glory of God, which the salvation transaction was intended to magnify. God himself is putting his glory on display by showing us that he is great enough even to reconcile rebel sinners to himself. The impossible task that we talked about last Sunday. Absolutely impossible for someone to be a rebel sinner fractured from relationship with God and actually be restored to the place of holiness sufficient to have fellowship with Him without compromising His holiness in the process. Impossible to do it. Except that God did. That's why salvation is holy of the Lord. It is simply God alone who can do it. Who can bring it about? And any part of it that depends on us isn't going to happen, isn't going to work. Verse 3, for what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not even Abraham was saved by works or any participation in his justification at all. He believed God, and that was credited to him, counted to him as righteousness. Quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, which is the first place in the Bible where this word believe appears in relation to salvation. As we move on in this text here into verses 4 and 5, we see that Paul draws two theological consequences from what he has just said about Abraham's justification from Genesis 15, verse 6. 
There's two things then that we can learn about justification. By what we read there, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. First, we learn that works have no part in our justification. And second, we learn that this is because God's justifying verdict is not earned on any level. It's not deserved on any level. It's given freely as a gift. Verse 4, to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. If you work for it, it's not a gift any longer. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. The employer is obligated to play the employee, even by biblical principles. But surely that's not how salvation works. There's no sense in which God is obligated to save. No sense at all. God could have been perfectly holy and righteous just to wipe out this world and start fresh with people who hadn't fallen. But the point is, the glory of God is being put on display by the way He has created and run the world that He has made, and His purpose is to magnify our understanding of His glory, His image-bearing creature's grasp of who He is by showing us what He's capable of, showing us His love and His mercy and His forbearance and His grace and His wisdom. And his humility. To not wipe out his world, but to sit to the praise of his glory. So he's not going to set up this salvation in some way that compromises his glory. He wants us to see the full manifestation of his glory. So there's no sense in which God is obligated to save Abraham's faith is, by definition, free of works. So it's not itself a work, but it's simply an expression of trust, of belief in the promise of God, in the grace of God then to keep that promise. And the basis of God's counting his faith as righteousness is wholly an expression of God's grace. God makes a promise. Abraham believes him. And God credits him as righteousness, as a manifestation of his grace, freely given 100% from God's side. Thus, verse 5, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. This word counted variously translated in different places in Scripture as accounted or considered or credited or reckoned. This word counted is used a dozen times in chapters 4 and 5. Eight of those 12 are in our text today. And to quote Doug Moo, because I love the way he summarized this, Paul argues that the reckoning of faith for righteousness in Abraham's life or in anyone else's is a reckoning that is holy of grace and must be based on faith. Viewed in this light, Paul 
point does not rest on an alleged Hebrew concept of reckoning, nor is he arguing that grace is the necessary consequence of reckoning, of the reckoning or of faith. Do you understand what he means by saying that? He's, not say, he's saying that the faith doesn't earn the righteousness. He's saying the grace is the basis for the righteousness. The faith is the means by which that grace is received, and in God's grace is the reckoning of righteousness that Abraham received, and he received it by faith. So grace doesn't come as a result of Abraham first having faith. It is an expression of God's grace that he receives by faith. Moo continues on. Grace is not the end point, but the beginning point in Paul's logic. From the fact of grace comes the conclusion that the faith that justifies must be a faith that is apart from works of all sorts. God saves God made promises. Abraham believed and God granted him the status of justification. Not in response to his faith, but his faith was generated by the very promise of God that justified him. This is precisely what Paul meant when he opened this whole section on the gospel back in verse 21, by saying, now the righteousness of God has been manifested that is apart from the law. It's new. It's grace. It is by definition free of works. This counting that comes up over and over again in chapters 4 and 5 is a gift. It's a gift from God. David is the second example here, and it even becomes clearer with David than it is with Abraham. Paul has already quoted from David's most familiar psalm of repentance in the wake of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. That was Psalm 51, verse 4, back in chapter 3, verse 4 here. Now he quotes from David's second most familiar psalm of confession, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, right here in verses 7 and 8. But look at verse 6 first where David is introduced. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So Paul is continuing his proof using David. Here is where we can see an amazing affirmation, an absolutely amazing affirmation, this side of the cross, that we can read right past it without drinking in its meaning. But we need to hear this. This is an example of why some might have charged God with being unrighteous, as we saw in last week's text. David didn't suffer the penalty of the law for his transgressions. Anyone can see that, and anyone could look at it and say, God is not keeping his word. David should have been put to death for adultery and murder. That's what the law required. Yet look what we read, and this is the part we can't miss. Look what we read here from Psalm 32 in verses 7 and 8. 
We read from David's pen, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. David, a thousand years before Jesus, is glorying in his forgiveness of capital offenses. And God's just? Verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David. We saw last week that David was justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We saw that this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Exceedingly important point for Paul to make. David was saved by the sacrifice of Christ. That's what we read. Just like we are. So was Abraham. And although it may be a bit harder to tell from Abraham's story, it's not at all hard to tell from David's. I think that's why Paul included it here. There's just no way that David was saved by works of the law. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, he's a demonstration to us that you cannot keep the law even if you have a heart for God. And the law will condemn you. There's just no way that David was saved by works of the law. Under the law, he would have been executed just like we all would have. And what Paul is telling us here is that that is true of Old Testament saints just like it is of New Testament saints. I'm not going to unpack this here, but I'm going to drop this little bombshell on you. You know what we're seeing here? We're almost seeing as though there's one people of God from Old to New Covenant that transition right through the cross. It's those who genuinely believe under both the Old Covenant and the New. We put this whole picture together, it's starting to look like there's one people of God here. It's not ethnic. It's religious. It's righteous. It's those who trust in God. Among the circumcised, it's those who are actually circumcised in heart. Among the entirely uncircumcised, it's those who believe in Israel's promised Messiah. And we're reconciled to God by that saving belief. Just a thought. We'll talk more about that as this letter continues. For now, let's move into verses 9 through 12. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the Jews? Well, we've already answered that. Only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Gentiles, the nations. For we say that faith, not circumcision, not works of the law, Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, and clearly he was counted righteous before he had been circumcised, verse 10. Before he had kept the law. And that, that faith, that justification 
centuries before the law was even given. Now, verse 11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision. By the way, like we received the sign of baptism under the new covenant. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. In other words, we could say this in our own words, God orchestrated salvation history in this way so that we wouldn't be able to miss the fact that salvation has been apart from works of the law from the very beginning. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes only the knowledge of sin. And just as with David, just as with Abraham, we ourselves today, picking up verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So, my friends, what, what difference does all of this make to us? You can tell that I'm passionate about this subject. I hope you are as well. But we do have to pose the question, what difference does it make to us? We get a detailed lesson, at least the beginning of one, since Paul continues on on this subject, and I said we'll, we'll hear more next week. We get a detailed lesson on the fact that every part of our relationship with God, from, from realizing the need for it to receiving the gift of His redemption to, to growing in that grace, we get a detailed lesson on the fact that our relationship with God becomes ours only through faith in Christ. And that's a really, really important thing to understand because like it or not, we still struggle with works righteousness today. We still believe that there's something in us that's deserving of God's grace. But there is no way to be reconciled to God or to grow in that grace except by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. All of it is by God's grace alone. So whatever the question regarding our relationship with God, the answer will always begin by looking to Christ. Always. We look to Christ from the place of just unconverted and awash in the weight and depth and darkness of our sin. And he cleanses us and reconciles us to himself. And our eyes never leave Jesus even as we begin to grow in that relationship with him that he has just established by his grace. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we never look away. Whatever question regarding our relationship with God, 
the answer always begins by looking to Christ. Always has, always will. There's just no room for boasting in this relationship. The whole of it, the whole of our relationship with God is accomplished to the praise of His glory. And we are the recipients who become trophies of that very grace. That's the way Paul wrote it to the Ephesians in chapter 2. We become trophies of God's grace, not because we are precious in and of ourselves, but because we are precious as the recipients of the amazing, impossible saving grace of God granted to us, awakening faith such that we can enter into it and enjoy this relationship with Him. Pray with me now to the God of this great salvation, and then we're going to remember the death of Christ that made it available to us. And as we pray, please, communion servers and musicians, uh, join us at the front. Father, we thank you for this text of Paul's to the Roman church here, removing all doubt that we contribute anything to our salvation and telling us precisely why that is so and how that has always been so and how the grace that we have received from you that brings about our justification and redemption, our reconciliation to you is a gift of immeasurable worth and indescribable grandeur. Lord God, I pray that as we leave this day, it would be glorying in the fact that you in your sovereign grace have appointed be recipients of it and therefore proclaimers of it. And I pray that there is nothing, nothing that we love in this world, the love of which could rival our love for our Savior and for our God who has provided salvation through him. That, Lord God, is what I believe Jesus said and meant when he told us to remember him through the ritual we are about to partake of. Remembering him means just that. Living with an unrivaled love of Christ and of God the Father who has provided salvation through him and of the Holy Spirit who indwells us to make us alive and guide our steps according to your word. So Lord God, in this act, help us, help us, strengthen us to remember. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.